Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, uh, many people, of course, are talking about Donald Trump, uh, and especially in light of the fact that Bob Woodward's book uh, called Fear uh, hit the bookshelves yesterday. I started plowing through it last night myself. Uh, and there seems to be a, a, a mindset by especially Democrats south of the border that, look, with all this negative press, all the stuff that's going on, all the things that were said in the eulogies of the McCain funeral, that the tide is turning and people are going to turn their backs on Donald Trump. Uh, I don't see that happening, quite frankly. Uh, Lawrence Martin writes a very, very uh, interesting piece it's, uh, in the Globe and Mail today. Lawrence, of course, is a public affairs columnist with the Globe and Mail uh, down in Washington, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Lawrence, thanks for the time. Really appreciate it today. Hi, Bill. How are you doing? Good. Do you get the same sense I do that the the Democrats and, and the, some of the, the people that are just fed up with Donald Trump think that the tide has turned because of, the, of books like uh, Woodward's book uh, that came out yesterday and some of these other things, that, that it's actually going to have an influence on people's opinions about Trump? Well, there certainly was a piling on in the last uh, week or two, a whole bunch of uh, uh, events and uh, books and uh, developments uh, which... Uh, you know, f- further the impression for everybody that uh, that Donald Trump is uh, unhinged. Now, now, frankly, Bill, there hasn't been a week since he became his uh, became president that he has not been accused of being yeah. unhinged. So you begin to wonder if there's uh, you know unhinged fatigue among the voters in the sense that uh, you know enough already. Um, okay, we already know that. Uh, what are you guys in the Democratic Party? Uh, what do you have for us? Now, um, you know, but one thing that's happening, I think, is that uh, all, all this talk about, about him being crazy and all the crazy stuff he does to merit that talk, it does uh, it does drown out uh, some of the uh, some of the good news that's happening in this country, the economy in particular. And now, if in this midterm campaign, Trump can switch the focus to talk on the economy and he can stay away from his mad tweeting. And all the accusations of being unhinged, then, uh, then uh, he could do uh, he could do uh, okay. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, since the day he walked down the stairs at Trump Tower and announced he was going to run for president or run for the nomination at that particular time, uh, this stuff has been out there. And uh, it, what it seems to have done here is simply polarize people. And how many times, Lawrence, during the campaign itself? Did did people say, well, that's that's going to do him in? You know, whether it was the tape, the uh, the grab them by the, you know what, and some of the other stuff that was going on, and everybody thought, well, boy, any other politician that might have sunk their campaign, it doesn't seem to have an impact. People are loyal to this guy, no matter what. Yeah, they really like the idea that you know he's sort of thrashing uh, elite Washington norms, right? Uh, he's like the uh, the guy at the guy at the bar who's half half drunk, uh, you know. <laughs> Taking stripes off everybody <laughs> in a totally undiplomatic way. Uh, people do. I mean, his base certainly uh, certainly likes that approach, and they do like America First policies. You know, I'm standing up against all the countries who've been ripping us off for years, which is not a very very um, um, convincing argument, by the way. But uh, they like people like that. You know, the, the nationalist appeal has always been there uh, for for any country's leader. They like uh, his like his judicial appointments, moving the Supreme Court to the right, which he's which he's doing in the last uh, uh, week or so. With it uh, looks like the uh, Kavanaugh appointment will get through. I mean, that's the most important development. Mm-hmm. Set aside all this stuff uh, about Woodward's book and more proof coming out that uh, that he doesn't know uh, that he's that he's running a uh, <laughs> that he's running a, 
a White House shop that uh, is, <laughs> is up in shambles. Set that aside, the most important development of the week is that uh, we're going to have another Supreme Court justice uh, in Kavanaugh after the appointment of Neil Gorsuch, which will tilt the court uh, to the right for uh, perhaps a generation to come. And as you know, the Supreme Court in the United States is uh, a huge center of power. Why Why is that pushed to the back burner now? I mean, these salacious stories about Trump, whether it's Woodward's book or Omarosa coming out with, I guess she's got another revelation later on this week, she says. Uh, and her, the New York Times uh, op-ed, yeah. Yeah, uh, and on and on it goes. But, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the appointment of Kavanaugh, or, you know, to go through onto the Supreme Court right now, could have a, an enormous effect on, on not just U.S. politics, but, you know, there, there's talk about reopening Roe versus Wade and a number of other issues uh, that are happening right now. Yet I'm not getting a whole lot of uh, a mainstream media participation in this. They seem to be gravitating to the Woodward book and, and, and some of the other stuff that's going on about, uh, the you know, whether it's Omarosa or anybody else, and, and forgetting about this one. Well, yeah, you 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 uh, you caught it when you said it's uh, salacious stuff, and as you know, uh, the salacious stuff is what uh, draws more eyeballs and more media attention uh, than uh, normal stories of uh, major uh, importance. And uh, for progressives, I mean, uh, uh, Kavanaugh is a, is a is a disaster. He opposes women's productive rights. He's a gift to the corporate class and small government advocates. You know, in that he's a He's a all-out sort of deregulationist, uh, and he's a gift to Trump because uh, he has a real permissive view of presidential power, and <laughs> he basically believes the president should be able to get, to get away with anything. So, uh, yeah, this is a, a huge development. Why why aren't the, the media jumping all over that? I mean, you know, when there were testimonies of uh, the Senate committee or the, the Congressional committee, I'm sorry, uh, about what was going on with the Mueller investigation, I mean, they, they, they actually said, okay, we're going to carry this thing live. I mean, it was on most of the, the networks for a period of time. Uh, the Kavanaugh thing seems to be slipping under the radar right now. Yeah, and you got to wonder, that, you know, the Democratic strategy at this point right now, Lawrence, seems to be, well, we're not him. We're not Donald Trump, so vote for us. And I, I, that's, that's a pretty weak-kneed strategy for a, a party that's really desperate right now to regain power in the House of Representatives. Yeah, that's what, uh, that's what I, uh, my sort of view is, you know, uh, the only thing that uh, that's out there in terms of uh, policy vision for the Democrats is that the, the guy in the White House is an idiot, and, and they think they can win on that uh, and, and by just repeating that message. Now, you know, we've got to bear in mind, of course, that in midterm elections, the, the, the president virtually always loses. So um, um, that's just, it's, it, it becomes sort of a protest vote. No, Obama got hammered and George W. Bush got hammered. And, and Clinton, Clinton got, got hammered. hammered, yeah. That was, there's yeah. a tradition there, so, isn't there? So um, it still will be uh, incredibly difficult for Trump uh, to, uh, to pull off uh, uh, not so much the Senate. He's got a good chance of maintaining a majority there, but the House of Representatives where the Democrats only need uh, 23 seats in a 435-seat chamber to, uh, to take, uh, take a majority. And then, but, of course, Trump will be able to turn around and say, well, listen, you know, this happens to every president in the midterms, and, in fact, I didn't lose as much as the other guy did. So that's, that will be their line. But at the same time, of course, when you, when it, when, when, if the Democrats do get a hold of the House, they can start all kinds of inquiries. They can block all his legislation, so, so it will be a nightmare for him. 
This is a midterm elections are, are fascinating to watch, and somebody liking them to buy elections. And I know it's 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 really an apples and oranges. I understand that, but the voter turnout is usually not very high in some of these areas. And uh, the other element that uh, they were talking about from a demographic standpoint is it usually is uh, older white people that tend to vote in in midterm elections. Well, that's got to I think bode well for the Republicans, wouldn't it? Well, they're, they're his type of voter. You would think now, with all the controversy going on and with uh, this this country divided uh, basically in terms of Civil War terms politically, like the middle of the political spectrum is gone now, right? It's all either people are stacked on the Republican side or people stacked on uh, more on the left side. And uh, uh, I don't think people have ever seen it uh, so polarized. And when, it, when you get that sort of uh, animosity... Uh, driving the dynamic, uh, you're usually going to get a, uh, a bigger voter turnout. So I think uh, with a guy like Trump in the Oval Office, we might see a bigger turnout than in any midterm election before. Is there a soft middle? I mean, we know that, that there are people that are just died in the wool Trump supporters no matter what. Uh, and there's obviously on the other end of the spectrum people that are died in the wool Democratic supporters, although I don't think too many of them voted uh, you know, in the last presidential election. But is, is there a soft middle there of people that say, well, I'm not sure which way I'm going to go, uh, that could be influenced by some of the, the, the stuff that's going on, the anti-Trump sentiment, whether it's the Obama speeches uh, that we talked about uh, late last week or, or the Woodward book or anything else like that? Is it going to have any influence at all on, on some of those people? Well, I think so. I mean, there's the, uh, the independents, the number of independents are, uh, have been, has been shrinking, but there still is, you know, maybe... Uh, maybe a, uh, a small percentage that uh, that are going to drift uh, one way or the other. Right now, it would appear that uh, uh, that the, the Democrats, according to polls, are, are capturing uh, more more of them than uh, than the other side. But much to, much will depend, as I as I was saying, on whether uh, Donald Trump can make the economy the issue. If he can do that, uh, he's not going to do too badly at all because the economy is just doing terrific. And, you know, of course, uh, you know, you can't credit him for, for that uh, in reality, nor can you credit Obama. I mean, uh, there's different cycles that, that affect things beyond a president's control. But, you know, Trump can take some credit because of the, the, his tax cut and because of his deregulation maneuvers and because of the confidence he has brought just as being a, a man of uh, swashbuckling uh, big business background, and the stock market has uh, responded uh, to that, the, the nature of this presidency that way. Great piece in the uh, the Globe today. It's called Constant Cries About Trump's Instability Simply Aren't Enough. Lawrence Martin, of course, uh, with us. Lawrence, thanks as always. appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Talk to you soon. You betcha. We'll talk again soon. It, it's a, a, an interesting thing to watch, really, the, the, the political process down there. And uh, the impact of, of what books like this can have, for instance, Woodward's book. And, and as we know, of course, uh, the White House, Trump himself personally, but a lot of his advocates, of course, have got, gone on the attack against Woodward. Uh, yet it's it's rather daunting to try to discredit Bob Woodward. I mean, this is a guy that's written a number of books over the last number of years. He does his homework. It's, it's, it's not just, hey, I heard a guy who told me a guy about somebody who might have been there. Uh, he has taped many of these interviews. Uh, it's... Uh, 
it's a book that may well have an impact on, on uh, the the political spectrum down there. Joining us to talk about what might be happening is George Breckenridge, uh, of course, political science professor emeritus at uh, McMaster University. George, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, good to see you, Bill. Are you plowing through the uh, the Bob Woodward book right now? Uh, well, I actually, I picked it up yesterday, yeah. Uh, so did I. <laughs> I so just, did got, just got started on it. It's a page-turner, isn't it? It sure is, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's one of these things, and, and, and again, I was, I was amazed as I started to read some of the things that were going on uh, with some of the characters that we now know, of course, the Rents Priebuses and, and Steve Bannons and everything. Yeah. But I, I mean, I was, uh, it's the same, I felt the same way when I read his book about Plan of Attack about the Bush administration and their, their contrived, uh, you know, methodology to try to support the, the war in Iraq, etc., you know, right. the weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but at this point, uh, is there anything that, that's going to shock us about Trump? I mean, we've heard, <laughs> is, uh, uh, but just stuff about it as bizarre as it could possibly get. Well, the thing about the about Woodward, I mean, is that he's he's a chronicler. I mean, that's basically what he does. He's he's written books about every president since since Nixon, since he made his name with all the presidents' men, and and uh, so he's a he's a chronicler. He goes and you know, talks to everybody. You know, he's not a great writer. But he he just collects all the facts and just lays them out. He doesn't really kind of analyze it very much either. He just lays it out. And of course, the thing about him is everybody believe you know he he is very credible. Nobody imagines he's making anything up, you know, because of his whole track record. And so, but and a lot of what he says, a lot of the de- he's, he's provided a lot of detail. And uh, in, in terms of what we've heard before, you know, from the reporting uh, that's been going on over the last year or so. So it's not uh, shocking, but some of the details are pretty startling, I must admit. And uh, so it just really firms up this picture of Trump, which has been building in any case, um, uh, somebody who's completely out of his depth. I mean, who's, who's not only ignorant but focused on the wrong things all the time. I mean, you know, he's the business about South Korea. You know, why don't we just bring them all home and we'll save all this money? You know, totally ignoring and totally oblivious of the whole strategic strategic importance of having troops in South Korea or in, or in Europe and things of like this kind. All he could think about is we'd save a lot of money, you know, and, and no wonder his... You know, people have, you know, called him a moron and everything else because it's just breathtaking that somebody holding that position could be so ignorant and almost willfully ignorant. You know, he doesn't seem to learn anything at all. Well, because he is, as you mentioned, he doesn't listen to it. But, you know, for people that are, are looking for corroboration on some of this stuff, yeah. uh, whether it's this book, and you know, like I say, we're plowing through it right now, and it's it's an interesting read, to say the least, yeah. or the op-ed thing from the New York Times last week, or some of the other stories that have leaked, right. uh, well, or things, <clears throat> excuse me, that we've seen with our own eyes. I mean, some of the yeah. comments Rex Tillerson made about Trump before he left that administration. Indeed. There's, a, there's a consistency to this, isn't there, George? I oh, mean, it, it's the same yeah. storyline. It's, it's not as if, well, boy, I read that. And it's totally different from what Woodward said. It just seems as if everything seems to fit in here. Oh, exactly. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I say it simply confirms the impression and the bits and pieces of stories that we've we've had almost from the beginning of the presidency. And in fact, you know, during the campaign as well, but particularly in the, in the presidency. So it just it just sort of sort of puts a cap on the whole story. Now, of course, this is dealing. 
uh, the the timing of this, he was really dealing with the first year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a slightly out of date because a lot of the people who were his sources are obviously his sources um, have left. You know that makes it even scarier in some ways. A lot of the people who were who were, for example, pinching. You know, taking letters off his desk so he wouldn't sign them. These people are gone, and uh, either they walked out or they were pushed out. And so it's even more um, risky in a lot of respects. And he's still fooling around with South Korea. You know, he's still, he's still, you know, for example, uh, you know, the notion that if we bring all the dependents home, we'll save a lot of money. But if you bring all the dependents home, North Korea will automatically assume they're getting ready to go to war, you know, and they may strike first. So he has no, this is what's dangerous about it, particularly in, in the foreign policy, um, security policy. He has no appreciation or sense of the, the, the whole kind of network that America has built up. America and their allies have built up since World War II, and which has kept the peace. You know, it's prevented World War III, as somebody said. He doesn't seem to have any appreciation or understanding of the importance of this. He just focused on the wrong things all the time, money mostly. George, historically, as, as we go back a, a, maybe a few administrations, I guess, uh, this is not the first time that we've seen a, a president that maybe not clued into what's going on and, and people within the administration actually uh, calling in the shots. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's widely known. I just mentioned Plan of Attack, one of Woodward's previous books about the Bush administration, George W., and, and it's commonly, I think, acknowledged now that Dick Cheney and, and Donald Rumsfeld were, were the guys that had the most influence against Bush and, and you know, had him urging on in this direction to that direction to their own benefit, usually. Yeah. Uh, we knew that uh, in the last uh, part of, of Reagan's administration, of course, he seemed to be showing the signs of dementia. Yeah. Uh, and, and the administrations are over. I mean, Haldeman and Ehrlichman, and you mentioned in the Nixon White House. Uh, and on and on it goes. So this is yeah. this is not totally unusual, no, but it just no, seems to be there. Ex- it's no, an extreme case, though, isn't it? You're quite right. It's not un- not all that unusual. I mean, with Nixon, particularly towards the end, Nixon was a was a much brighter man with a really good strategic sense. But he had this huge chip on his shoulder. He saw enemies everywhere, and his staff, people like Haldeman and Ehrlichman, learned very quickly when to ignore what he said, you know, and when to actually do what he wanted, you know. And so they they were so this notion of not always taking the boss all that seriously, uh, as well as often you know the uh, the um, you know the president wants to do something, but it's actually got to be carried out. There's actually got to be a process of carrying it out, and that doesn't always automatically happen. So it's often being portrayed that the president needs people around him not only who will stop him from doing something really stupid, but also who will help him to carry out the policies that he really, you know, he really wants to pursue, they really want to pursue, because it doesn't happen automatically. You don't snap your fingers and something happens. So the the role of of the senior staff in the White House has always been extremely important. And so in that sense, is you know, some of some aspects of it is, of, you know, have not been uh, very different from what happened in other situations. But the notion of, you know, we've we got to take this, this uh, letter off his desk, otherwise he'll sign it. And, of course, the other thing about that is when it's not on his desk, he forgets all about it, you know. So it's, it's a very, 
it's an extreme example of what you, what you rightly say is common in terms of how the, the, the senior staff around any president actually, actually work. George Breckenridge. Uh, George, as always, appreciate the time. Thanks for this today. You're welcome, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.